You're listening to the Safety Work Podcast, episode 71. And today we're asking the question, do mandatory double check policies improve safety? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name is David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. We hope you're finding our new fortnightly routine to your satisfaction. It's definitely making things easier to prepare. And the episode that we're doing today was one of those ones where we thought it was going to be somewhat straightforward, but uh, about 20 research papers later, Drew finally emerged. And here we are tonight with, with this episode. So in each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So today we're tackling one of the questions in our safety of work ideas portal. You might've come across the portal and the easiest place to find it is to go to the safety of work LinkedIn page, follow the link, and there you can enter an idea for an episode, raise a question or vote for other questions that other listeners has already raised. So this, the question for this week that we're tackling was submitted by Reese Thomas and Reese asked us policies mandating double checking of medications by two individual people is a widespread practice in healthcare. It takes up a lot of staff hours, but does it improve patient safety? Reese also pointed us to a couple of relevant papers, including an observational study and a systematic review. So Drew, would you like to kick off with some background to this question of double checking policies? Sure. So so before we get too deeply in, I, I want to point out and be very clear on this, that the question does not have a definitive answer. David, unless you've been newly qualified since we last spoke, neither of us are medical professionals. We don't want to be giving people advice about how to run hospitals. All we can do is comment on the research that's in front of us. On this topic, there's a surprisingly small body of research. I reckon when I was looking it up, I probably found more systematic reviews surveying the literature than I did find original research papers. So it's no surprise that most of those systematic reviews say there's not much else written about this. Um, What research is there is really rather mixed. And so there's a real danger that if we followed our usual format and just picked one paper, that we'd be giving you pretty bad advice. But I still think it's a really interesting question and it's a really interesting case to discuss. It lets us think about some things like what is an error, what counts as an error, and how we treat errors. It also lets us talk about some different research methods and how they go about answering questions like this. So we're going to basically talk around this question and never actually give you an answer. I just wanted to be clear about that up front. David, do you want to tell us a little bit about what double checking is before we? Yeah, so double checking. Look, it's a it's a practice adopted in many industries, not just healthcare. Even if you don't call it double checking, so we know of it in aviation between actions of the pilot, the co-pilot, and air traffic control. We know in in major hazard facilities, there's double checking activities around around risk and work permits. In utility sectors, there's a, a confirmation process around energy isolations. And we, I think we could, if we if we thought about it, come up with examples of double checking practices institutionalized in, in all of our high hazard industries. So it's a really important question for us to understand about the, the safety benefit from come, that comes from that, that validation process through double checking. So when we're talking about double checking, and in this case, what we're talking about specifically today is medicine administration. And so double checking can be, I suppose, there's there's two broad categories of double checking. There's this confirmatory process, which is someone says, hey, this is the drug, this is the dose, can you check check it for me in the presence of the other person? And the person just goes, yeah, that looks right. 
and then the other one is that that it's independent. So both of the people independently work out what's needed, and then they compare their notes. So that's either what we might refer to as a prime double check or an independent double check. And then, Drew, I thought it was interesting the way you drew this distinction between double checking being either a practice in the organisation or a mandatory policy. Uh, and you talked about the difference here between um, when you were briefing me, at least, you talked about the difference between it's a different question if you're asking do bike helmets work or does a mandatory bike helmet law work? Um, I don't know if you want to say anything more about that difference between a practice and a mandatory policy. No, I think you've explained it pretty well there, David, that you know, we're measuring different things, whether it whether the rule works. Um, and it matters whether you, how you measure it. So whether you measure, you know, we put in place this policy and see the effect or whether we actually check to see whether people are following the policy and only score it for people who are following the policy rather than evaluating the policy as a whole. But we might say a little bit about the particular area we're studying. Uh, for some reason, a lot of the papers about double checking in medicine are specifically about medical administration. So the idea is that a doctor has already decided what is the appropriate medication. So we're not talking about mistakes made in selecting medication. And the doctor has already decided what is the appropriate dose. So we're not talking about mistakes in the doctor deciding on the dose. What we're talking about is that decision has been recorded in some sort of chart or in some sort of electronic system. And a nurse comes to actually give the patient the medicine that's been prescribed. So that's what medicine administration is, the actual giving of the medicine. And so an error is where the medicine that is given doesn't match the medicine that has been prescribed. And David, I don't know about you, but it's surprised me just how difficult it is to even define whether that is an error. So we've got all sorts of weird situations. So we've got, for example, the nurse looks at it and thinks that maybe the doctor has made a mistake. The number just looks wrong. You Technically, you could say that is an error in administration because the nurse has not given the medicine that's prescribed. Or the patient is supposed to be given it at nine o'clock, but the patient is in the shower at nine o'clock, so it gets given at the wrong time. It gets given 15 minutes later. No real difference. Is that actually an error? Or the patient gets prescribed one thing and they get given a generic version of the exact same drug. Or it has to be measured out in 50 mil doses and the dose that ends up being given is 51 mils and so they carefully record that, that gets counted as an error. You, all of those things could be counted as errors or they could not be counted as errors. Or maybe it only gets counted as an error if someone detects later that the wrong medication's been given and otherwise it goes unnoticed. I think that's an important question to to ask about what counts as an error, particularly when we're looking at literature reviews and where we're looking at different research studies. It, it can be important to know what people were counting as errors because as we go through, we'll we'll introduce some some rates and some statistics from certain studies. And without knowing exactly what's being counted as an error, you can form very different views about you know the problem associated with medicine administration in hospitals. Yeah, I wanted to start this podcast by talking about how serious a problem is this that we're trying to solve. And you look at the different studies and it ranges from two in 1,000 times medicine gets administered, it's in error. And most of those times it's harmless. To another one of the studies has like 70% of the time medicine is an error in some sense. And so even just trying to, like, trying to describe what is the scale of the problem, how is important is it that we have safety protection is really hard to do. So it's hard to know what counts as an error in the different papers, but so how how would we go about getting information on whether double checking works? So so how did you approach trying to answer this question uh, from our listener? 
Okay, so the, the honest answer is our listener provided us with a really good paper. So I started off writing the episode around that paper. But I then went and looked at some of the papers that that paper was referring to. And so I got a bit of an idea of the range of different stuff that's out there. So these are just some examples of different types of ways people have tried to investigate the question of whether double checking works. So the most basic one is you go into incident databases and you say, how many times do we have actual adverse events that happen because of a lack of checking? And how many times does this happen even though there is double checking? So we get studies like that. And that's originally sort of where people came up with the idea that there's a problem we need to solve through checking in the first place. Is typically there's an accident that happens. They investigate what went wrong. Oh, we, what went wrong was we administered the wrong medication. How do we fix that? We put in place a process for double checking. Now, every time there's a similar incident, we look and see, did someone double check? And if they didn't double check, we say, oh, that's what caused it, is failure to double check. So we've got a number of studies like that. We've then got a number of qualitative studies. So these are ones where they talk to nurses and pharmacists and doctors about patient safety, or maybe they specifically ask them about medicine administration. And they say, you know, what do you do? How well does it work? What frustrates you? What worked well? What doesn't work well? What do you worry about? A good example of this is there's a 2015 paper by a friend of the show, Dr. Tanya Hewitt, that's part of a wider study interviewing practitioners about their beliefs about patient safety practices. And they found that checking was something that came up a lot in these conversations. So they decided to write a paper digging into that specifically. And then we've got some other studies that set up like simulations or experiments. So there's a 2015 study by Dr. Amy Douglas where they had simulated patients and they deliberately created errors. And then they either had one nurse or they had a pair of nurses working together and tried to work out whether the errors were detected or not. So a little bit of an artificial situation, but it's nice and definitive because you know whether the error exists or not. You're just checking whether the single nurse or pair of nurses were able to work it out. And if we want to get a little bit more thorough, we go into observational studies. A really good example of this is a paper published in 2021 in a really good journal, BMJ Quality and Safety. I'm not going to list out the authors because there are 18 authors on this study. The lead author is Professor Johanna Westbrook from Macquarie University. This was a really thorough study. The researchers shadowed the nurses and the researchers separately had little devices on which they could record whether and how checking occurred. And then they also entered their own details of the medication being administered. And then they sent off those records to an independent researcher who hadn't watched this happen to work out whether the medication that was administered matched the patient record. So it was part of a larger study about electronic health systems. The researchers were embedded and around all the time, so the nurses got used to seeing them around. They didn't feel that they were being checked up on specifically about the double checking. Uh, so we get some good information about how checking practices work. And we'll talk a little bit later about the results of that study. The gold standard, but which is still really hard to do, is an actual clinical trial, which is as if checking is like a treatment. A good example of this is there was a crossover study. So Ward A uses single checking, Ward B uses double checking. Then you watch that for a while and then they swap over. Ward A uses double checking, Ward B uses single testing. That gives you a nice fair test. But there's a lot of noise because there's all sorts of reasons why things could be varying over the trial. And in particular, how do you know whether an error has happened if no one notices it? And so we don't really know when the errors have occurred. If we had a completely reliable way to know when someone's made a mistake, no one would ever make mistakes. So Drew, there's half a dozen or so different 
methods uh, for for researching this question of you know how do we understand how double checking practices work you know in in the real world and how do we understand whether double checking processes work in terms of improving safety and you know I think you've highlighted there a couple of studies or, or, or at least a study in in each of those different methods but I think I think in just before we move on to the next session it's still it's clear that medicine administration errors are are a problem it seems as though from the literature they're more common than we'd like although in one of the studies um, one hospital that had like 5,000 staff I think um, had done like 50 million drug administrations in a 12-month period so that's just a, a huge volume of, of activity and we don't really know from the papers and why I say we don't know is because the the rates range from like you said two in a thousand to 72 in a hundred times that that the person administering the drug gets it wrong. So look, it, it, it's something that feels like it's a it's a important area of research, medicine administration. And I think double checking as a, as a control for the risk around that is an important area to research as well. So conducting realistic studies that get enough data, although really hard, is probably a quite a valuable research avenue for us to, for the appropriate kind of uh, researchers to pursue. Yeah, I mean, this is a really serious problem that people are trying to solve. Yeah, I've mentioned that neither of us are doctors, but one of the examples that keeps coming up is there's some drugs where there's two different ways to administer it. You can administer it basically into the blood vein or into the muscles, and you do it the wrong way, the patient dies. And so, you know, a mix-up between the drug that's meant to go one way and the drug that's meant to go the other way is really a life-and-death error that comes down to a decision right at the coalface with the person giving you the injection. And so I don't want to pretend that this is not a serious problem or not a one that we would really like to have more reliable solutions for. The trouble is we just really don't know whether having a second person check helps or not. And so I think we might put a lot of faith in that second person check process, which is like, well, if if one person makes a mistake a percentage of the time, if we check it all of the time, then we're going to significantly reduce that percentage of of both people making making a mistake. So we want to understand what are the potential problems with double checking. And for this part of the episode, we're going to use a paper authored by Dr. Jerry Armitage. And the paper's titled Double Checking Medicines, Defense Against Error or Contributory Factor. So it was published in 2007 in the Journal of Evaluation of Clinical Practice. Andrew, we really like good titles of papers. I think I particularly really like good titles. And this is this is exactly what the paper um, sort of talks about. And I, and I want to sort of say it again. So double checking medicines, so is double checking a defense against error or a contributory factor of error? So this is, I know, quite a contentious debate. Could double checking actually be contributing to more errors than single checking? So look, Armitage, as a single author of this paper, he's published a fair bit about patient safety, including several papers that are papers that are cautiously skeptical of double checking. Andrew, I was thinking this might be one of the first times we've talked about a paper on the podcast with only a single author. You just talked about one from Macquarie University. And I assume Professor Jeffrey Braithwaite was one of the authors of those 18 authors on that. But um, how common is it as an editor of a safety journal to get a single author paper? Good question, David. I actually don't know what the exact situation is here. Um, uh, but I, I want to try to make sure that whenever we talk about an author, we give them their correct title. And at the time he published this paper, he wasn't Dr. Jerry Armitage. And two years later, he was Dr. Jerry Armitage. So I'm assuming that this was actually part of his PhD, is my best guess. And that's where it's really common to have a single author paper. Uh, The other time is when it's like an essay or opinion piece. 
so a few of the like really big names in safety tend to publish single author papers every now and then. Uh, you know, uh, Rasmussen did it, Sidney Decker does it, Levison does it, Holnagel does it. When they're sort of presenting a new idea or they're arguing a position is a common time to get a single author. And that's certainly, so Armitage sort of has two types of papers. He's got these single issue, single author position pieces and then multi-author empirical or qualitative studies. Uh, this one is, sorry, go on, David. Yeah, thanks, Drew. I saw, I saw, um, comes from a registered nursing background and and before is obviously completing his PhD. And so he, this study involved analysis of 991 incident reports about medi medicine administration errors, followed by interviews with 40 healthcare professionals, so doctors, nurses, um, pharmacy staff. It was a targeted sample. So he looked at these 991 reports from within an individual hospital, and then he went and sought out, I suppose, volunteers of healthcare professionals in that hospital that had experience of medication errors. So he wanted to talk to people who had experience of medication errors. And so the analysis of the incident reports in that study, Drew, indicated a few interesting things that the incident reports themselves tended to attribute the medicine er administration errors to the individuals. Um, so the person administering the medication itself and a number of cases where the errors happened despite or because of double checking. So it wasn't clear from the incident report whether the double checking had actually happened, uh, but at least in 12 clear cases out of 991 drug administration errors, double checking was involved. And so even when the double checking occurred, it was still felt it was still the individual who administered the medicine that was seemed to be blamed in the incident report. David, I don't know what you thought about this. I, I was sort of interested in what the standard is because it seemed to be that he was almost arguing that if we have cases where there was double checking and an error still happened, then that was like an argument against double checking. Whereas I see it more as it's an imperfect defense. So, you know, even if double checking didn't catch everything, if double checking still substantially reduced the number of errors and we still had some errors where there was double checking, it would still be something that was worth doing. Yeah, I think that's a good interpretation. I think as a layer of protection, it, it may not be perfect, but we don't know from this study how many what happened in the 979 out of the 991 cases where double checking did actually work and it was something else that um that was a problem. But what is really interesting is the rest of the paper from the interviews is actually going full in the opposite direction. So he's essentially arguing that there are good reasons to believe that if you put in place a double check, then even the original person administering the error, sorry, administering the medication, might be more likely to make a mistake. So there's the possibility that the double check doesn't help, but there's also the possibility that having a double check makes things worse. And then there are some actually quite compelling reasons to believe that that's something that we should worry about. And I think um, Armitage did a pretty good job of presenting this qualitative research back, like with the inclusion of some quite detailed quotes in the paper and really gave a sense of where the themes were being drawn from in terms of what someone said. I, I must admit, Drew, it got me really interested that I would love to actually go and read the 40 transcripts from these interviews because of the way that the information was presented in the research paper. And I think you're doing a good job of qualitative research if readers want to then go and actually read the raw data. Uh, it depends, David, whether they're reading the raw data because they're interested or because they want to read the raw data because they don't trust you because uh, <laughs> they suspect you've misrepresented it. Yeah, maybe. So, Drew, the themes for the interview. So, so we talk about the. I want to talk about these four themes that uh, Armitage talks about could be 
problems or um, or issues with the double checking process. So the first is deference to authority or deference to authority. Do you want to talk about talk about that as an issue in double checking? Sure. So there's a couple of things going on here. The example that he gives in the paper is the idea of a nurse being worried that the medication is not the right one to administer and then checking with a more senior nurse who tells them to go ahead and deliver the medication. So you know that's an example where the person you're checking with is sort of enforcing that the medication gets delivered as written on the piece of paper, but increases the chance that something that's written on the paper might be incorrect and that they just go ahead and do it. So having the double check sort of reduces the opportunity to challenge or to question what's going on. But I don't think it was in this paper, David, but it was. I, I definitely read this somewhere else I read. It was like a process of deference to whoever is quicker with the maths. So someone was making an argument that if you have two people doing calculations, the first person to do it is probably the person who is least accurate but faster with doing the mental arithmetic. And if they say the answer, the other person sort of gets drawn into that answer rather than doing their own independent calculation. So the first person says, oh, it's, you know, it's 60 mils divided by body mass of 30 kilograms equals three mils. And the second person just says, yeah, that sounds right. First person's made an error. They've divided by two instead of dividing by three. Second person sort of goes with the flow and doesn't have time to carefully work it out for themselves and doesn't want to appear stupid by saying, no, you know, stop, let me work out for myself what 60 divided by three is. And so you end up with the quicker, least accurate answer taking priority. Yeah, so I think what we'll what we'll go through is when you actually got this double checking where you've got the checkers um, in really close proximity and, and engaged in the process at the same time, you know, opens up that hierarchical and, and, and some of those sort of social processes to, to play out. The second one that I'm actually sitting on an episode from someone, from, from a listener who wants us to talk about diffusion of responsibility. And here it was called reduction of responsibility or dilution of responsibility. And it was this idea that if I know someone else is going to check what I'm doing, I can be less thorough. Or if I'm checking someone else's work, I know it's already been calculated or checked by a competent person before I have to check it. So I probably don't really need to give it my full attention. And if both people involved in the checking process or are feeling like the other person's going to do a more thorough check than them, then it might end up in a situation where they don't take the ownership and responsibility to make sure that they do a, a complete complete job you know, for their part in the process. And, and this happens to us all through our lives. So it's, it's a really real thing. You know, I, I very often uh, co-supervise students. And if they send me something to review and the other person who's supervising gives a really detailed response, then I'm likely to just skim through it. Whereas if I give a really detailed response, the other person is just likely to say, yeah, whatever Drew says. Um, and that's what we do all the time is there's no point in duplicating work. So if two people have the same job, we either assume that the other person is doing it really well or one of us is sort of the primary person and the other person is you're just checking. They're putting less intellectual effort in. And I suppose the risk is where, um, where, where both people make assumptions of the other person in the process and those assumptions don't really line up with the way that each party sees the world or, or participates in the process. Andrew, the third here was about auto-processing. So this idea from some of the respondents in this study or the participants in the interviews that double checking happens with very little active appraisal. So, and here they drew out a distinct difference between the way that the structure of the checking process between different uh, professions within the hospital. So if you've ever been into a chemist or a pharmacy or a drugstore, depending on where around the world you're listening, and you see what you see is you see someone go and prepare the prescription and then they put it in a little basket and they sit it on the bench 
and then the pharmacist or someone else come along and they pick up the basket and then they they go through and they look at the drug and they look at the prescription and they do their own checking and that's like this independent check where there's actually no interaction uh, between the person who does the first preparation or check and the person who does the confirm confirmatory check so they're not talking to each other they're not priming each other they're doing two independent reviews if you like and then compare that with the nursing staff that were basically bedside when one person held the drug out read the label read the dose and the other person kind of nodded and you know maybe in here they were saying that oh you know what are you doing on the weekend or what are you doing after your shift and they're doing other things at the same time that the idea of auto processing kicks in which is things are right so much of the time that people just assume that they're right all of the time yeah i was actually struggling to imagine what true independence could look like because even in the case of the pharmacist there's an implicit message going on that you know the person who puts it in the basket is saying i have done this and this is what i think the answer is and the other person checking it is picking it up and saying, okay, with the assumption that 99 times out of 100, these things match. My default assumption is that they match. I'm just checking in case that they don't. So what do you need, Drew? Do you need a, do you need a third check where two people independently take the same script and put two baskets on the table next to each other and then the third person checks that the thing in the basket is the same? I, I, I literally think it's impossible to create complete independence. Unless you, yeah, unless like literally you both separately prepare the medication and then analyze them, and only if both medications are equal do they get administered to the patient. It's not, it's just literally not possible to be truly independent. There's always going to be some degree of assume you're following down the path, doing this automatically. It's a job that we do thousands upon thousands of times. There's no way it doesn't become a little bit rote. There's no way we give it our full attention 100% of the time. Yeah, and I think, Drew, one of the things that was interesting in here where you said there's no way we give it our full attention 100% of the time was the idea was introduced here and it was actually came out of, you know, some of the quotes that the double checker does their own, in, may, may do, their own internal risk assessment that controls how much attention they put into the double checking process. So depending on the drug that gets read out, there was a quote in the paper that says, you know, look for blood products, I would always make sure I did a proper double check. And then if it was something that I knew couldn't really hurt the patient, then, you know, I knew that I wouldn't, you know, it, it didn't matter so much if I didn't, you know, do a double check properly, because even if the first person got it wrong, it wasn't really going to hurt anyone. Yeah, I got a real sense from the qualitative interviews in this paper and in the other qualitative papers that there's a formal risk assessment that go, get, goes on and that there's certain types of drugs that get classified as high risk and they're the ones where double checking is mandatory. But even within that category, and even outside of that category of high-risk drugs, everyone has their own internal risk assessment calculus, that there are certain things, whether because of experience or because they know these mistakes are common, or because it's a mistake they've made themselves and they're worried about it, certain things that trigger a genuine rigorous scrutiny, and other times that something might be technically high-risk, but actually it's fairly routine. So Drew, the fourth theme there after deference to authority, reduction in responsibility, auto-processing, it's just the simple idea of lack of time. So if you're running around trying to find someone to do the double-checking process and you're trying to get all of your jobs done, it just can be hard to do a thorough double-checking process just from a, from, a, from a pure time constraint for the person, the first person as well as the, the checking person as well. So Drew, you raised this idea that from a study by West, uh, Westbrook, sorry, that um, 
most double checking is in fact not independent. So you talked about struggling to think about a situation that was truly independent. Well, this study claimed that probably only around 1% of the double checks that went on was in fact independent checking. And the other, 90, the other 99% had some degree of the first person priming the second person with information. So Drew, let's, let's move on. What are the, what's the evidence for and against double checking? Because we've, we've talked about a number of studies so far in the in the podcast okay so so i think it's worth saying upfront that despite the arguments made in that armitage paper there is no evidence and no one who seriously believes that double checking actually makes things worse than single checking so even though theoretically there are reasons to believe that really these are all arguments that are about the ineffectiveness of double checking not that it makes things actively worse there's no evidence of that actually happening. But there is really a lot of evidence that double checking sucks up a lot of time and then a big question mark about whether it helps and certainly whether it helps proportionate to how long it takes. Um, so the Westbrook study, for example, this is the observational one where they did lots of following around of nurses, found that for the mandatory double checking, there was no effect. So it really didn't make a difference for things where they were had to do double checking, whether they in fact did or didn't do the double check. Even when people forgot to do the check, same rate of errors. Uh, but they did find, oddly enough, that where they're not, they don't have to do double checking and they chose to do it anyway, there was a positive effect. So that's sort of voluntarily where they're a bit worried themselves, they get someone else to check it, that seemed to reduce errors. There are some weird statistical things in that study, though, that have me not wanting to take the results too definitively. In particular, they found a huge number of errors. Something like, you know, 72 errors per 100 medicine administrations, which suggests to me that they were being really, really uh, pedantic about what was and wasn't an error to the point where these results may not sort of like meaningfully reflect what's actually going on. So Drew, this paper also forced me to go and do my own digging. And so I put up a study because there was one something mentioned in a literature review about a study that over a seven month period double checking and single checking had no difference to to error rates, a little bit like what you just said there about the Westbrook study. And what I actually found is this was actually another hospital in Australia and it was published in 2002. And what they'd done is they had a double checking process in place and they wanted to change certain medicine administrations to a single checking process. But what they actually did was they did, did a survey about uh, drug administration. They also did a competency check of people around checking that they could uh, administer drugs let's say, reliably and accurately, accurately with a single checking process. And what they did is they then observed all of, they observed the administration of drugs, but they also calculated the error rates and the incident rates uh, for seven months after they made this change from mandatory double checking to mandatory single checking. And they also found in the error rates themselves, it made no difference. But they did find in the surveys, the survey questionnaire they did, when they asked about things like level of responsibility, how thoroughly they that the people or the the healthcare practitioners administering the drugs felt that they were delivering the medication and their sense of accountability over medicine administration. They found a number of increases around, let's say, role and task factors that we might normally see in sort of a, an engagement or, a, or another sort of psychology type of questionnaire around people's sense of accountability and purpose in their role. So, But they also reported in this study a, a saving of time of something like up to an average of 20 minutes 
per medication round in the hospital, which goes to that issue of time where they felt that they could pay greater attention to the other health needs of the patients. They could pay greater attention to what was going on with the patient's condition. And they weren't running around in night shift trying to find another nurse in a ward to, to check a medicine administration. So interestingly, like you said, Drew, nothing that suggests that double checking made it worse, but definitely some research that suggests that double checking may not have the impact on improving safety that we might believe that it has. So I did go and have a look at some of the systematic reviews and try to get a sense of the overall weight of evidence rather than just these single papers. And typically what we find is that there is some work which shows some benefit for double checking. The trouble is that the methodological standard of all of these uh, projects is pretty poor and there aren't a lot of them anyway. So it's kind of choose your own answer to the question, depending on exactly how you weight the individual studies and what you pay attention to. You, For example, some of the studies don't actually measure the error rate, they just measure the compliance rate. Some of them measure the compliance rate, but they don't measure the error rate. Uh, some of them, the error rate goes down everywhere, which suggests that the fact that researchers are watching people is having more of an effect than the double-checking. Some of the studies have got a tiny number of errors, so we can't draw statistically significant results. So that, that's why I sort of said at the start of the podcast, there's no clear answer to this question. All there is is a big question of what do you do with the fact that we don't have a clear answer? We've got this practice that a lot of people do. We've got evidence that is pretty weak that doesn't say the practice is bad, but it doesn't give a slam dunk answer that the practice is good either. So is it justified to make people spend time on a practice when we don't have clear evidence whether the practice helps or not? And lots of people, when they're interviewed about the practice, complain about it and say that it's not helpful or that it's distracting. But there are lots of authority figures who say, you know, this is a cause of accidents if we don't follow the practice. So Drew, what, what's, um, I think, what would be your, your next steps then? So do you want to keep sort of working through this this debate about what do we do with this incomplete information? Whose responsibility is it to find what information to help us understand the, the practice further? Well, there, there are some organisations that actually have this job. Uh, so either charities or statutory authorities who are supposed to sort of give advice on patient safety or what are like the currently approved treatment options. And I found it really interesting that the general response to the types of studies and systematic reviews that we've talked about in this podcast, they basically shift the burden of proof the other way. They say, you know, we've got this practice um, and there's insufficient evidence to abandon it. Um, so I thought it was really interesting. That's not the words you usually see when you're evaluating giving people a medicine. You know, there, there, there is insufficient evidence to justify not giving someone a medicine. And the other thing is that there's a lot of you, if it's not working, it's because people aren't doing it right. So lots of people give the advice that say, you know, the important thing is that we have independent checks and that those checks are for the most dangerous medicine. And so they say, well, okay, the reason we've got mixed evidence is because people aren't doing the checks independently or because the policies are too broad brush. They're not just applied to the dangerous medicines. And yeah, I, I personally find that a little bit of a strange argument. You know, I think the first time you propose a practice and someone doesn't do it, you can say, okay, well, it's still a good practice. They just need to do it properly. But when you've got a long-standing practice and good evidence that no one ever actually does it the way it's supposed to be done, I think you need to question the overall feasibility. So, you know, if we're supposed to be doing independent checks, but no one ever actually does the checks independently, then maybe it's not feasible to expect independent checks. 
I think it's hard, Drew, because I think the practical, rational side of me can go, well, okay, it seems like a sensible thing to do for these dangerous, risky situations, get a second person to check, you know, before before it happens. And then, but then the, I suppose the social psychology researcher in me knows sort of how this may play out in the real world, which is where a practitioner makes their own risk assessment and and primes a situation and tries to get on with their job. And we've seen this outside of the healthcare sector. Well, I've, I've seen this in some industries. I'm going to talk about the utility sector briefly because they do say high voltage live line work and low voltage lifeline work. Now, high voltage lifeline work might be 100 plus thousand volts and low voltage works might be anything less than say 11,000 volts. And it's actually the high voltage work which carries so much risk that is so well controlled and 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 so well thought through and so well planned that most of the problems and if you look at most of the fatalities that occur in that industry it's what with what might be perceived as a lower risk activity and then all the systems and processes and mindsets in those organizations are built around the fact that it's perceived to be a lower risk activity so it'll be really fascinating in this data set and it's just a hypothesis of mine it would be really interesting to look at the medicine administration errors and how they're actually categorized from a risk point of view by the hospital and what the what the relative error rates are between higher risk drugs and lower risk drugs because i'm going to i suppose put a hypothesis on the table that the error rate's going to be much higher for those things that the hospital perceives as lower risk but i don't have any evidence behind any of that there certainly is evidence in some of the studies that that is the case but it's not quite fine-grained enough that we can say then the sort of case question that we really care about is does the double checking help in those higher risk situations? You know, you can put contrasting hypotheses. You can say, well, okay, everyone is so careful in those situations anyway that having the extra check doesn't help. Or you can say those are the most sensitive situations. So those where we want every layer of protection we can have. So we want double checking. But you're mentioning the social psychology. I realized myself just in preparing this episode how strong the forces are. So we have here a practice which is expensive. We have here a practice where there is not a strong evidence base that this practice helps safety. And I am completely unwilling to say this is a bad practice, we should get rid of it until we've got the evidence. The fear of recommending stopping doing something, even when there is no strong evidence base supporting that thing, is still a real fear. You know, none of us want to be responsible for saying, let's do less safety. Yeah, I think you're right, Drew, but I think it's that Westbrook example of what you called out, that in those mandatory high-risk checking situations, the double check uh, didn't change, I suppose. Let's say the the error rates and where the first person wanted a second opinion, then you know obviously it, it did have an impact. So now we're back into the safety work, safety of work discussion about mindset. You can have the same practice in two different situations with the different mindset of the first person involved in the practice generating different outcomes. One has an impact on the safety of work and one doesn't, which is why we found it so hard to just blank, broadly categorize certain practices as being safety work or uh, as safety clutter or not safety clutter um, under the safety work heading, because the same practice can be very, very, have a very high contribution to the safety of work in one setting and, and not a, no contribution in another setting. So having picked up a clear listener question and having failed to give any sort of answer to it, do we have any sort of practical takeaways we can offer from this episode? Look, I think I had a couple, but do you want to, do you want to get us started, Drew, with these, these practical takeaways? But before, before I maybe throw over to you, 
I just there was a line in in this paper that in one of the papers that I copied across because it stood out to me in some of the work that I've been involved with recently that you know healthcare is a very human centered affair where you've got actual you've got human action as the last let's say a last line of defense or maybe only a, an, a single layer of defense between a major hazard outcome and there's not no automated process to monitor no automated process to detect no automated process to recover in that risky situation. So you've got these human actions that form the principal defenses. So the paper talked about increasing, you know, error wisdom as an imperative for these frontline uh, operators, like helping them understand or, or build, building competency in them about how they understand how errors can occur and might occur and the, the ways to, to mitigate those in terms of their human actions. And, and I, I sort of the paper then defers to the aviation sector and talks about crew resource crew, crew resource management in the cockpit and things like that. But I think that's something that's worth starting from a practical takeaway point of view. If you've got human actions, which are really critical controls uh, in your uh, hazard management process, then you really need to help people understand how those controls can fail. Yeah, no, th thanks for throwing, throwing that in, David, because I find that a really useful thing as we head into takeaways is that no matter what else, this idea of double checking has built into it a sympathy for the fact that humans are fallible. It encourages people to think, you know, even though I'm doing my job, I'm doing my job competently, I'm doing my job with care, there is nothing wrong with admitting I might be wrong, let's get someone else to check it. And that that is, if it's built into the culture rather than a sort of mandatory rule, a very healthy approach to have to error is just recognising that, yeah, we're not perfect and having someone else check and tell us that we're wrong is not our mistake. It's not a bad thing. It's just part of the way we do business. So Drew, what else might we might we do with this double-checking situation that we might have in our organisation? So I think it might be useful for anyone in safety to just think about situations where we've got two different humans inside the same decision loop. You know, it might be explicitly checking, like in this case, it might be just having someone else review your work or sign off someone else's work. And think about how much extra confidence you have in the safety of the task because of having that second person. And is that something that is justified? You know, is the second person actually adding that level of safety? Or are they just adding safety work? And is the extra time and effort of having a second person in the loop worth it? You know, are there better things we could be doing with that time? Or do we think that, you know, genuinely it's a sensible decision that we've done the right thing? By having two different people checking that same task. Andrew, I think the last practical takeaway for me was one that was called out in even the most, I suppose, skeptical papers like the Armitage paper um, to encourage critical thinking in the checking process. So if you've looked at your checking processes and if, if you've thought about, yes, it does give me some extra confidence or I'm not sure it gives me confidence, a number of papers talked about this enforcing a doing what you can to create some independence, enforcing a time difference or a physical distance between the first person and the checker so that they you limit the extent to which the, the first person can prime the response of the, the person who's checking that work or can engage in some other sort of social process or, or separate process which might distract the checker from, from doing what you hope to be a, a thorough and independent check of the process. I think the pharmacies are a great example of that. I have to admit, I have dozens of times seen the pharmacist put the medication and the script into that little basket, and I had never once noticed its purpose in creating that independence in the process. I just thought it was a weird thing the way pharma pharmacies operated. 
Um, and now that you've pointed out, David, I'm not going to stop noticing that, you know, utility of creating the separate check by putting things in the basket and handing it over rather than... I only know because I've been sitting there in the in the pharmacy frustrated going, there's my medication right there. The, the person's already prepared it. Why can't the person just give it to me? And it just sits there for 15 minutes until the um, second person comes along and, and checks it and goes, oh, well, here you go. Here it is. So um, that was the example that first sprung to mind when I was reading the paper. So we normally finish our episodes by an invitation to the listener. My question that I'd be interested in some conversation, maybe on LinkedIn, is what's your sort of take on the default action we should take when we've got a common safety practice and we don't have good evidence for it? Is it okay to drop a practice just because there's no evidence? Is it okay to continue the practice even though there's no evidence? Is there like an active ethical obligation that we immediately try to search out evidence in those circumstances? I always struggle with that on this podcast when we're coming up with recommendations, just what to do with a lack of information, how definitive you can be. So I'm interested in what people think. Yeah, Drew, I, I am too, because like it's, it's that question of, you know, where's the burden of proof? Should we have things that we can prove contribute to the safety of work? Or should we have everything that we think might contribute until there's things that we definitely know don't? Um, and I suppose that's the that's just a bit of a central discussion on uh, the 70 or 71 episodes today on the podcast. So Drew, um, you've answered it a couple of times through the process, so I almost feel like I shouldn't. But just, just um, for process sake, the question this week was, do mandatory double checking policies improve, improve safety? And your answer is? Well, that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 